Hello everyone! Welcome back to Haunted 518. <laughs> this week I'm drinking strawberry lemonade from Cape Line. It's delicious. With only six ingredients, it's not terribly sweet and definitely a great drink. So this week, I thought we would focus a little bit more on Albany and I had a, an interesting murder that I wanted to kind of start off with that I do have a little bit of a personal connection to. So I don't know if you've heard about Christopher Porco, born July 9th, 1983. He's a convicted murderer. He was convicted of killing his father and attempting to murder his mother. He was tried in Goshen, Orange County, New York, on charges of second-degree murder in the November uh, 15th, 2004 killing of his father, Peter Porco, in second-degree attempted murder in the severe wounding and disfigurement of his mother, Joan Porco, in Delmar, New York. The trial lasted 21 days and was one of the most highly covered Capital Region news events in recent memory. The trial was moved to Orange County after a New York State Appeals Court ruled that a change of venue was necessary to ensure Porco received a fair trial due to the intense media coverage in the Albany area. Orange County Criminal Court Justice Judge Jeffrey Berry who presided over the trial, allowed still cameras, no sound or video, in the court during the proceedings, a rarity in New York State, which gives judges great discretion over the electronic recording of cases. The judge did allow videotaping of the summations of both defense and prosecution lawyers. The announcement of that, of that verdict was also taped. The case against Porco received extensive coverage in local newspapers, including the Times Union, as well as in local television outlets. Outlets. <laughs> the case was also the subject of a one-hour documentary on 48 Hours Mystery entitled Memory of Murder, broadcast by CBS on no November 4th in 2006. This attention may be due to the grisly nature of the murder, as well as emails between Porco and his parents in the months leading up to the attack, which have been made public. The emails detail tension caused by Porco's academic problems and careless spending. Perhaps most interesting to those following the case is the fact that a badly scarred Joan Porco maintained her son's innocence through the trial and accompanied, and accompanied him to many of his criminal proceedings. On Monday, November 15, 2004, a New York State Courts officer was ordered to the home of Peter and Joan Porco. Peter, a state appellate division count clerk, had not reported to his Albany office for that morning. Upon entering the two-story home at 36 Broccoli Drive in Del Mar, the officer discovered Peter's lifeless, blood-soaked body near the front door. An Albany County medical examiner would determine that Peter, 52, had sustained massive head injuries causing his death. Joan Porco was soon discovered by police officers. She was lying in the couple's blood-drenched bed and had suffered severe head and facial trauma. Joan would lose her left eye and a portion of her skull. A fireman's axe belonging to the Porcos and used in the attack was found in the couple's bedroom. As Joan was rushed, rushed to the emergent, into emergency surgery, Bethlehem, New York, rushed into emergency surgery in Bethlehem, New York, New York police quickly off quickly focused their investigation on the younger of the couple's two sons, Christopher, then a student at the University of Rochester, 230 miles westward. Less than two hours after authorities arrived at the scene of the attack, an all-points bulletin for Christopher was issued. Christopher Porco was at the University of Rochester when his parents were discovered. He was accidentally notified by, of the attack by Simone Sebastian, a reporter at the Times Union, who attempted to contact Porco's roommates with questions about the family. That evening, Porco returned to Del Mar and was questioned by Bethlehem police detectives about the attack. So in the months following the attack, Porco's attorney, Terence Kindlin, criticized investigators, saying they were focusing narrowly on Christopher Porco as a suspect. Shortly after the, the attack, Bethlehem police de detectives were dispatched to the university to interview Porco's fraternity brothers and friends and to, and to determine his whereabouts during the early morning hours of November 15th. 
In late November 2004, outgoing Albany County District Attorney Paul Klein convened a grand jury to hear testimony implicating Christopher Porco in the murder. Some of those who were reported to have testified in the closed session hearing included Porco's Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity brothers and friends from college, a University of Rochester campus safety officer, as well as a former girlfriend. The grand jury would field more testimony and stretch months before finally handing up an indictment against Christopher in 2005, one year after the attacks. Christopher Bowdish, a Bethlehem police detective, stated that as medical personnel attended to Joan Porco at her home, he took a moment to ask her if she could identify her attacker. Bowdish said that when he asked Joan if a family member had done it, Porco used her head to indicate yes. Bowdish had maintained that when he asked her if it had been her older son, John, a naval officer stationed elsewhere during the attack, she shook her head indicating it was not, but nodded her head up and down indicating yes when he asked if Christopher were responsible. Joan Porco's alleged identification of her son Christopher may explain why Bethlehem police pursued her son soon after the incident, rather than conducting a broader investigation of potential suspects. The murder gained greater attention in the Capital District as Joan Porco, emerging from a medically induced coma, maintained that Christopher had nothing to do with her husband's murder. During videotape testimony submitted to the grand jury in, in December 2005, Joan testified about her family but did not identify her son as an attacker. Nine months later, she wrote a letter for, the publica for publication in the Times Union about Christopher. I implore the Bethlehem Police and District Attorney's Office to leave my son alone and to search for Peter's real killer or killers so that he can rest in peace and my sons and I can live in safety. It was quickly revealed to the news media that there had been tension between Christopher Porco and his parents involving money prior to the attack. A series of emails disseminated through the press showing the growing rift over loans that Christopher took out to pay for his tuition at the University of Rochester, as well as to finance his new Je yellow Jeep Wrangler. Following the fall 2003 semester, University of Rochester officials forced Christopher Porco to withdraw from school due to poor grades. When Porco was readmitted to the university the following, following year, he took out a loan for more than $30,000 to pay for his, his expenses, forging Peter's name as a co-signatory. Unbeknownst to his parents, Christopher was attempting to pay for his fall 2004 tuition with a portion of the $31,000 loan he had received. Earlier in the fall, he had told his parents he had been readmitted to the University of Rochester after the, after the school determined a professor had misplaced his final exam from the previous fall semester. Peter and Joan Porco were under the impression that their son's tuition would be covered by the college. Less than two weeks before his murder, Peter confronted his son about his dishonesty in an email and reprimanded him. Did you forge my signature as a co-signer? What the hell are you doing? You should have called me to discuss it. I'm calling City Bake this morning to find out what you have done, and I'm going to tell them I'm not going to be on it as a co-signer. The following day, Peter Porco was notified that Christopher had also obtained a line of credit from Citibank to finance the Jeep Wrangler. His son had also used Peter's name as a co-signatory to secure the auto loan. Peter once again wrote to his son, who had not answered phone calls from him or Joan in weeks. In an email, Peter warned Christopher that he would not tolerate any more dishonesty. I want you to know that if you abuse my credit again, I will be forced to file forgery affidavits in order to disclaim in order to disclaim liability and that applies to the Citibank college loan if you attempt to reactivate it or use my credit to obtain any other loan. In the same email, Peter Porco welcomed his son to return to the family's Delmer home to resolve the matter, concluding his message by saying, We may be disappointed with you, but your mother and I still love you and care about your future. Christopher Porco told investigators that on the night of November 14, 2004, he retired to a dormitory lounge at the University of Rochester to, to sleep and awoke the following morning. 
Bethlehem police detectives and current Albany County District Attorney David Soares were steadfast that Porco instead drove more than three hours eastward to Albany in the early morning hours of November 15th to murder his parents. Marshall Goki, a neighbor at 53 Broccoli Drive, told investigators shortly after the murder that on November 15th, before 4 a.m., he, he spotted a yellow Jeep Wrangler in the Porco's driveway. Investigators also contracted two state New York two New York State Thruway toll booth collectors who reported that they recalled seeing Wranglers matching the description passing through their station. John Fallon, a toll collector at Exit 46 out of, outside of Rochester, New York, recounted seeing a yellow Wrangler with large tires at approximately 10.45 p.m. on November 14th. Karen Russell, who co collected tolls at Exit 24 in Albany, told investigators that she spotted a yellow Wrangler shortly before 2 a.m. on November 15th because of its excessive speed upon approaching the toll plaza. Four security cameras stationed at the University of Rochester recorded footage of a yellow Jeep Wrangler fitting the description of Porco's vehicle leaving the campus at 10.30 p.m. on November 14th and returning at 8.30 on November 15th. Prosecutors maintain that the attack on Peter and Joan Porco occurred in the early morning hours. Much attention has been focused on the personality of Christopher Porco. Police contended that he is a sociopath who lied to attain a car as well as tuition payments. Michelle McKay, a law clerk who worked with Peter Porco, said she had described his youngest son as a sociopath during a conversation with her. Several Albany area psychologists and mental health professors have stated for the Times Union that Porco's behavior was consistent with that of a sociopath. In particular, they focused on a consistent pattern of lying that Porco did to convince acquaintances that he was from a wealthy and influential family. During the course of their investigation, authorities determined that he had a history of antisocial behavior that included burglarizing his parents' Delmar's home. In 2005, Bethlehem police detectives traveled to San Diego, California to retrieve a laptop computer Christopher Porco had stolen from his parents on July 21st, 2003, during a break-in that occurred while he was home from college. Porco had sold the laptop on eBay. Eight months earlier, on November 28, 2002, police contend Christopher also staged a burglary at his parents' home in which he took a Macintosh laptop computer and a Dell laptop computer. A camera reported missing from the burglary was recovered from the couple's front yard. One month before the attack, both Christopher and Jonathan Porco had their eBay accounts frozen because they shared the same Delmar address. Christopher had not sent several customers the items they had paid for from his account. During their investigation, it was revealed to prosecutors that Christopher posed as a Porco brother, sending email, sending emails to the jilted customers, explained explaining that his brother had died and he was unable to deliver on the items. While away on a trip to England in March 2004, Christopher received an email from Joan Porco's account admonishing him for failing classes at Hudson Valley Community College in Troy, New York. In the message, Joan and Peter complained to their son, You just left and we can't believe our eyes as I look at your interim grade report. You know what they say, three strikes and you're out. Explain yourself. The email's subject header was entitled, Failing Grades, You Did It Again! Exclamation point. <laughs> Several days later, Christopher re replied in a message to his father, blaming the community college community college's office of registrar he wrote but obviously they are incorrect incorrect my lowest grade that i got on anything was a b on a physics test don't jump to conclusions i'm fine porco earned readmission to the university of rochester with a forged transcript from hudson valley community college judge barry he has refused to allow prosecutors to use the forged transcripts as evidence in their criminal case against christopher porco Defense attorney Terence Kindlin emphasized that the Bethlehem Police Department had no physical evidence linking Christopher Porco to the attack on his parents. No fingerprints were, were recovered from the fire axe found at the scene of the crime. 
In statements to the press and criminal proceedings, Kindlin had suggested that the Bethlehem Police Department had made Christopher Porco's guilt a foregone conclusion. During his opening remarks to jurors on June 27, 2006, Kindlin described the Bethlehem Police as a department that chases skateboarders away from the 7-Eleven. This is not the FBI. <laughs> Kindlin's co-counsel and wife, Lori Shanks, also has also maintained that police overlooked the possibility that Peter Porco's death was the result of a retaliation against his uncle, Frank Porco, a, a captain in the Bonanno crime family in New York City. Frank Porco had served two years in prison for loan sharking and extortion, although Shanks incorrectly told jurors that he had been indicted for his involvement in a murder. Shank noted that Frank Porco's nickname in the mob was the Fireman, which could have had something to do with the type of murder weapon found, a fire axe. He had served in the New York City Fire Department. On August 2, 2006, the prosecution completed its case against Porco, and the defense's case, which was much briefer, began. In the morning of August 10, 2006, the jury began deliberations. Deliberations. By 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Christopher Porco was found guilty of second-degree murder and attempted murder. On December 12, 2006, Judge Jer Jeffrey Berry sentenced Christopher to 25 years to life on each count totaling a minimum of 50 years in prison. Judge Berry was quoted as saying, I fear very much what happened in the early mornings of November, early morning, I'm sorry, I fear... I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15th is something that could happen again. Porco was initially sent to Downstate Correctional Facility. On January 23rd, he was moved to Clinton Correctional Facility in the Danamora Village, New York, to serve his prison term. I did not know he was at Danamora. That's very interesting. Um... And I did not know the links to the Bonanno crime family. That's super interesting too. I I was I lived here during this, and I remember actually I was overseas when this happened, but I remember it um, was all over the news and all a lot of people could talk about. So it actually happens to be that I do have a personal connection. My brother, who has passed. He was dating, the girl he was dating, one girl I think before, he had just broken up with her right before he passed. She, his ex-girlfriend, dated um, Christopher Porco's brother. And um, they dated for a really long time, I would say three or four years. And I had either, I had either come home from overseas or I was home for a break. And she had a younger brother who I believe graduated. It was a, I'm pretty sure it was a college graduation party. Um, and we had stayed at their family camp, I believe prior. I think it was on Lake Luzerne. I could be wrong, um, but it was in the Southern Adirondacks. And um, so my brother's ex-girlfriend's family had a camp somewhere in the Southern Adirondacks and the community there by the lake had a, it was almost like a, like a pavilion and small like lodge and area by like the main beach area, I believe. And then their house was not far from that. So they ended up renting for her brother, her little brother's graduation party. They ended up renting, I don't want to call it a lodge. It was like a, it almost felt like a like an old fire, like an old firehouse, like when we would have like school dances or birthday parties and like um, wherever like Girl Scouts would have events. Um, it was just kind of like an older building and big open, big and open inside with like a kitchen. And that was pretty much it. Um, so there were a ton of tables set up. There was, everybody was playing games. People were playing beer pong and, um, I had been drinking, I was actually staying at the camp, my whole family went, and, um, and I remember that because she was dating his brother, Joan Porco came to the party also, but I didn't realize she was going to be there, and I had been... <laughs> 
drinking a little bit and I was a little tipsy and we were all playing beer pong for a couple hours and it was so awesome. And then I turned around to hear someone asking, can I play? And it was Joan Porco. And, um, you know, that's how I remember it, whether, whether she actually asked that I'm not, I'm not sure, but I basically remember turning around and she was there and I was really obviously taken aback because I wasn't expecting to see her. I had actually never seen photos of her or seen um, her in person prior and I was obviously surprised but um, she was so sweet and so fun um, sweet little woman and I ended up playing beer pong with her <laughs> so I always say my cool story is I played beer pong with Joan Porco um, but very sad but um, but definitely Definitely wonderful that she survived and was still able to kind of like go out and about and have a have fun and enjoy what she could. So on that note, I figured I would read a few Albany related stories um, that I found in David Pitkin's book, Ghosts of the Northeast. Just some more fun stories um, staying in that in that geographical location. It looked like a quiet, comfortable house where her family could recuperate from hectic jobs in Albany, New York. State Route 7 wound eastward from the Capital District through Pittstown and east into the Green Mountains. In Pittstown, they rented an old farmhouse called Gordon's House in 1978. It had been in the Hall family for, for years. I just knew we were in for an experience the first night we moved in, said Joan another Joan. As soon as we got into bed, we heard tee-hee-hees and snickering, then quiet laughter from somewhere upstairs. I went to the children's bedroom to encourage them to sleep. We'd all had a very hard day, but the, ki but the kids were asleep or they were pretending, I wondered. When I got back to my bedroom, the giggling began again. It was hard to tell if it was a child or adult. So I went back to the kids' room, but they were asleep in the same positions, so it could not have been them. So who was it, I wondered. Within a few days, a member of the landlord's family came by. How do you like the house, she asked. We really like it, I told her. Won't you come in and sit for a while, I gestured to the living room. The woman got a funny look on her face and said, no thanks. I just wanted to know how things were going. She she backed towards the door and left quickly. Joan devoted all her non-work time to moving furniture and hanging pictures, making it a real home. There were four large bedrooms to arrange upstairs, but one still contained the owner's furniture. Expecting a house guest, she asked the landlord if she could move that furniture to the barn. When he said okay, she did it, then repapered the walls and spruced up the floor. After setting up a bed, she decided she and her husband would use it as their bedroom. Her husband woke her at about 2 a.m. saying she'd been restless, talking, and seemed about to scream. She'd been She'd been dreaming of a short, dark figure sitting next to her bed. She didn't feel menaced, but was terrified at not knowing who the person was. Her husband invited her downstairs for tea, but when they reached the top of the stairs, he felt, he felt blocked by an icy wall. On another night when Joan's husband was making his way to the downstairs bathroom, he encountered a spectral woman with bent legs in the middle of the stairs. Downstairs, he found none of their furnishings, but old-fashioned rugs and furniture, as if he had stepped back in time. Then, in a split second, the old decor vanished and their new furnishings reappeared. One night, their daughter fell asleep on the sofa in the downstairs living room. When she awoke, she saw the lights on in the dining room and an old man in a World War I uniform in a wheelchair. Then he vanished, and the dining room went dark again. At her government job in Albany, Joan mentioned these events to a co-worker who, to who told her of a priest who did spiritual cleansings. When the priest came, he said prayers and sprinkled holy water. He held a crucifix on the upstairs hallway wall, but it wouldn't lay flat. Later, she wasn't sure that the exorcism, if that is what it was, was effective. Noises continued for a time, but then Joan got her old job back in Massachusetts, so they moved. 
Investigating, I learned that Gordon's Hall, Gordon Hall's brother, Henry, was the only fem family member to serve in the army during World War I. Henry received an honorable discharge in 1919 and returned home. Later, he moved to Vermont and married, though the records beyond that are sketchy. The Pittstown historian stated that Henry was convicted of assault with intent to murder his wife and had died at Windsor Prison in Vermont in 1943. But further investigation in New York State and Vermont archives indicates that Henry didn't die in prison, but, but had been paroled a year before he died. At any rate, I think Henry's spirit returned to the old farm in Pittstown, and that, and that the injured or deformed woman who blocked the stairs was his aggrieved wife, who followed him. Her failure to forgive him many hold her there too, may hold her there too. I contacted the present owner whose family purchased the house in the early 1970s and had been Jones' landlords. I was about 16 then, Peter said, and brought some friends over to play rummy. As typical teenagers, we speculated about whether Gordon's spirit was still there. I, don't, I didn't believe in ghosts and said so. I still don't believe in ghosts, but we had a very strange experience that night. At midnight, the power suddenly went off in the house. We'd, have the, we'd had the TV on in the background, and of course it went off too. But a Seth Thomas electric clock plugged into the same outlet as the TV was still running. It chimed 12 times. We got out of there. Was that Gordon? The next day we questioned the neighbors. None of them had had a blackout. So how do you explain that? Though Gordon had lived a, lived a peaceful life, the old homestead had became a magnet for his brother Henry's angry spirit after 1943. Thirty years have passed since these events, so we all hope, so we hope all family matter, mem members have finally sorted through their joys and failings and have passed on from life's battlegrounds to a more peaceful state. The next one is called the Trooper. In July 1991, Jeanette worked as a medical transcriptionist for a doctor in Albany, New York. Listening to the physician's dictation through earphones, she typed comments onto patients' me medical records. My mind was in neutral and my fingers were moving automatically on the typewriter, she said. Suddenly, a male voice beside her said, Jeannie, where are you? His tone was urgent. The voice was that of a man she had loved dearly 40 years before. He had been a New York State, State Trooper with Troop G in the Capital District when they had met, and he was the only person to ever call her Jeannie. And there was no mistaking his Brooklyn accent. All of the old mixed feelings of anger, resentment, and love returned. She had not let herself think about him much during the 40 years. He had abandoned her romantically when he suddenly transferred to a troop on Long Island. Angry and confused, she had watched him depart and neither had attempted further contact with each other. Now his voice had reawakened memories of their youthful romance. His presence seemed to hover nearby during the next few days, even while she was driving. She tried to find his address, but couldn't. Though the voice seemed to be warm and loving, he seemed to need something from her. Memories of him were both good and bad, so she pushed the feelings away, mentally asking him to leave. Well aware that the transition from this world into the next is a process and not a single event, Jeanette eventually concluded that she must have been ill, dying or dead when he made contact. That he must have been ill, dying or dead when he made contact. She wondered why she hadn't seen the trooper as she had, as she had both felt and seen her father's presence when he died in 1989. In the years following the trooper's visitation, she sought information and found that, indeed, her former lover had died, almost a month after she had heard his voice. Jeanette deeply pondered this event and, after sharing her experience with me, asked if a person could go out of his body, perhaps while in a coma, prior to death. I told her of such a case, involving a former student who, pronounced dead in a diabetic coma, had revived and related an out-of-body journey. Further inquiry revealed that her trooper had been comatose for some time before death. Jeanette informed me, informed me that this spirit communication caused her to re rethink his possible motivations for reconnecting with her as he prepared to die. Her quest for more information had caused her to reconsider her beliefs on life and death and induced her to return to the church of her youth. She is grateful for this contact. 
After she shared his this story, we lost touch for several months. Then she called to, a re, to relate a recent dream. I was walking through a quaint town with brick streets to a bridge over a wide river. He walked on his side of the river and I walked on mine. As I watched, he crossed the bridge. I also stepped onto the bridge. We met and he kissed me. He, he then turned and walked away where he vanished in a mist. I knew I couldn't follow him yet. Now she, she now believes he had personal or family troubles which he couldn't f confide to her when they parted and has forgiven him for that. She, she believes he left without a word rather than hurt her father. Deeply touched by his deathbed search for her, she believes he did love her and the dream promises for a future reunion. The next one is called... And I've actually spoken about it, but there's um, this one in a prior episode. But this this specific story has a lot more details, so I thought it was would be interesting to talk about. It's called Clara's Dress, and we spoke about this for the Loudon Cottage, I believe, in a past episode. Abraham Lincoln sat just a few seats to Major Henry's Rathbones, Major Henry Rathbones left in the box at Ford's Theater. From time to time, Lincoln grinned and chuckled at the actor's dialogue as he warded off the weariness of a long and bitter war. Also smiling at Henry's left was his fiancée, Clara Harris, as she whispered into the ear of Mary Todd Lincoln about a line in Our, in our American Cousin that the four of them were enjoying that Good Friday evening. Finally, we'll have some peace, thought Henry, with Lee surrendered... With Lee surrendered at Apotomix, the president will be able to bind our nation together again. The president was visibly relaxing. Then, what was this? Another, another military messenger entering their box? This would be the second one tonight. He stood to intercept the man moving from the shadows. No, something is wrong here, thought Rathbone. This one has a, pest, a pistol. He never concluded that thought. A gunshot exploded. Rathbone lurched at the intruder. Grappling with the man, Henry felt a, the searing pain of a knife slicing into his arm. He heard women screaming and saw the president crumpled. Henry felt life draining away. He glimpsed at his beloved Clara's white satin dress spattered with red blood, and he couldn't fathom whose blood it was. Fighting to remain conscious, he heard only bits of sentences, and then a dark pall engulfed him. When he awoke, Lincoln was dead. Plans were underway for a state funeral and the president's burial later in Springfield, Illinois. Rathbone settled into a despondency of guilt that was broken only sporadically during the remainder of his life. Clara's wound was the haunting lifelong memory of Mrs. Lincoln screaming, my husband's blood, as she had looked at the blood-soaked dress. In the early summer 1865, the betrothed couple managed to return to the Harris summer house, Loudon Cottage, in Loudonville, just north of Albany, New York. There, Clara unpacked her bloodstained dress and hung it in a bedroom closet. She then had the closet sealed and covered with wallpaper as if to permanently obscure the tragedy. When the Good Friday anniversary came in 1866, Clara Harris went to bed early, praying not to remember the previous year's trauma. Around midnight, she awoke to the sound of her bedroom rocking chair moving ryth rhythmically, accompanied, accompanied a man's low chuckling. Then she saw Abraham Lincoln in the moonlight, seated in her chair, quietly enjoying a drama not visible to her. The president gazed in the direction of her now concealed closet. At that moment, her chime clock struck midnight and the entire scene vanished. Sobbing uncontrollably, she awoke the entire household to tell of the apparition. Most family members felt it was just a nightmare until, on succeeding Good Friday evenings, others who stayed in the Loudon Cottage bedroom have had, civil, had similar experiences. One man told of awakening to see a blood-stained dress hanging inside the room's seemingly transparent wall during his terrifying encounter with the dead president. Compounding the tragedy in 1883 when the Rathbones were living in Germany, Henry, overcome with guilt at his inability to save Lincoln, murdered Clara and attempted suicide. He ended his days in a German asylum. 
Eventually, the Harris house passed to the to other owners. One day, one being Daisy Ransom, who who operated it as a boarding house and knew nothing of its spectral past. On a Good Friday evening, Mrs. Ransom lost a tenant who fearfully recounted his midnight experience in that room. Suddenly, I could see the rocker move. The tall man sitting in it looked so sad. The dark girl in the white gown rested her head on rested her hand on the rocker i sat up i could see so plainly i could see so plainly now but i could not speak i was petrified the girl's gown was a white satin adorned with long silken wreath of red roses and lilacs across the bodice and down the skirt she sobbed loudly holding herself by leaning on the mahogany rocker I then, then I heard it, a shot rang out. I screamed as I saw the beautiful white satin dress splashed with spots of blood, red blood mingling with the red of the roses. The young girl fell to the floor. I screamed again and again, he said. No amount of persuasion could keep him from fleeing the house in anguish. Some folks think that the mayor's son, Henry Rathbone Jr., destroyed the dress before he put the home up for sale. Daisy Ransom is also said to have uncovered uncovered the hidden closet burnt, and burned the dress in order to lose no more income from the fleeing tenants. In any case, Clara's dress has disappeared. One might think the dress's destruction would have ended the haunting, but in the early 1900s, the governor of Massachusetts visited his cousin, Hobart Thompson, who was then the cottage's owner. The politician went to bed late, pondering the fate of a pending bill in the Massachusetts legislature. He also awoke just before midnight and saw Lincoln rocking in the moon moonlight. Reaching for the, little, for the light switch, he overturned a pile of books with a crash and Lincoln disappeared. In 1927, Loudoun Cottage was moved to its present location, about 500 feet from its original site on Cherry Tree Road. A succession of owners since that time have reported no further Lincoln sightings, so perhaps the Harris and Rathbone families have finally found peace. The life and death of Abraham Lincoln continued to touch the hearts of millions. Nowadays, in April, many people still report the wind, the wind and sounds of Lincoln's passing funeral train on the old New York Central Rail, Railroad tracks between, the New, between New York City and his Illinois grave. Many others report seeing Lincoln's ghost in the White House in Washington, D.C. Many thousands more, especially foreigners studying United States history, discover Lincoln's living spirit in his writings, which inspired and uplifted our nation in the time of its deepest trouble. Though he is one of the first American teachers to thrill hearts of the world's people seeking to understand democracy and freedom, his fellow countrymen are rapidly losing knowledge of and respect for the man. His birthday is feebly honored or simply ignored by the young, who are no longer certain just which presidents are honored on President's Day or why. Lincoln's birthday has degenerated into cynical consumer consumerism and hucksterism. Better his memory, principles, and spirit than his ghost be reawakened in the 21st century. Um, so just a few things before I go on to the next. The name Daisy. Love it. Don't hear it often enough. Um, the other thing is I had no idea that Clara's husband murdered her and then and then he tried to commit suicide that's really interesting um and third i wanted to tell you guys if you have not been to loudonville um just drive through there on like a nice day or during the fall because the houses there um like on route nine going north are so eerily beautiful and large and like um sta stately that but unique that you can't help but feel like there has to be history within them um so i know that area is very interesting um and and full of um interesting excuse me architecture the next one is called the desk Three young women, all students at Albany, New York colleges, shared an apartment at 520 Madison Avenue. Their graduate degree programs were exhausting and they treasured their downtime. Therese sat in, a in the large living room playing with Lurch, the roommate, roommate Lisa's cat. 
Suddenly, Lurch startled, arched his back, and hissed loudly. Following Lurch's stare, there, Therese saw a man standing in the hallway between the living room and kitchen. He wore a brown suit and derby. Astounded by this stranger in her apartment, Therese demanded, Can I help you? The man did not answer, but turned and walked into the kitchen. She jumped up, pursuing him into the kitchen, but it was empty. A thorough search of the apartment turned up no intruder. When Lisa and Gloria returned from their classes, the three roommates held a quick meeting. If some vagrant had been able to enter their apartment from the street, they wanted assurance that he would not return. They set up a meeting with Rich, their landlord, who, ch who checked all the locks only to find them working properly. None of the four could imagine how the stranger could have entered the building. Knowing my, knowing my metaphysical interests, Lisa, my eldest daughter, called me, seeking my advice. Suspecting the intruder may have been a ghost, I informed her that if the man had never been seen there before, as seemed likely, then something in the building must have changed recently. Check again with your landlord to see if that's possible, I urged. When they queried Rich once more, he silenced our theory of renovations in the building. He did, however, mention that he was storing in the basement an antique roll-top desk that he'd acquired in Boston the previous weekend. The young women asked to see the desk, he, and he led them to the cellar. It was beautiful. It was beautifully made of mahogany, and Gloria noted that it was stored directly under the hallway upstairs, where the intruder had first appeared. Rich offered to store the desk elsewhere, and did so the next day. From that time onward, there was no further special inc spectral incidents at 520 Madison Avenue. Who the spirit was, how he became associated with the desks, and why he attached himself to it may never be known. What is evident, however, is that ghostly appearances can occur when purchases such as antiques or even garage sale items are brought into homes or offices. I actually um, have that fear because I only really try to buy secondhand. Um, the majority of my items are secondhand, if not all of them, and I actually really do get worried about that <laughs> too. Next one is called Spirits and the Rose. The College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, which is actually where I went for my bachelor's degree, is almost 80 years old. Its founders took pride in the loyal alumni who have formed lifelong bonds with one another and to the college. Some may have returned to the campus after death. On Morris Street is an old Catholic convent converted into a dormitory in the 1960s. Since deciding to end daily mass there, the chapel was closed off to students. Now a permanent wall separates the old chapel from a student lounge, where those immersed in TV sometimes report seeing a priest in old vestments saying mass while intermixed with the wall. He stands with his back to those in the lounge, facing a no longer visible altar. For 40 years, Morris Hall residents have also reported hearing sweet flute music echoing in the building, though no one has ever been able to locate its source. But until recent years, but until recent years, spectral music existed elsewhere on campus too. The now demolished music building, Cabrini Hall on Madison Avenue, was replaced by the Hubbard Interfaith Sanctuary in the early 1990s. When Cabrini stood, many students and teachers heard piano music emanating from the locked building at night. Often students there also complained of having someone or something brush against them when no one was visible. Most of them believed it was John, a former music professor who many years ago had traveled to Chicago and hanged himself in a hotel there. Several of his colleagues felt John's duty-bound spirit returned to Albany to watch over his former students. Masses have been said at the campus chapel for the repose of John's soul. Peggy, now principal of, Catholic, of a Catholic elementary school in Ohio, was among a group of plucky students who convinced the security officer to let them stay in Cabrini on Halloween. Trying to catch John in a nocturnal concert, they stayed the night without result. Peggy admits the group was keyed up and found it hard to achieve the quiet that John likely needed for his concert audiences. The music department used to keep costumes and props for college plays locked in Cabrini's attic. Sir Senior, I'm sorry, Sir Senior Dorothy Flood, retired music department chairman, 
recalls finding the attic floor strewn with broken wooden swords that where an hour before they had been neatly stacked and unbroken knowing she had the only key to the room in her pocket said a prayer and then hastily retreated the attic also figured prominently during the great northeast blackout in november 1965 no electric power power flowed in the city of albany saint rose coeds however stood in awe staring in the attic window in cabrini the attic light was on and nobody ever was able to explain why perhaps john was listening to a light opera in the 1980s when certain when senior Dorothy was a house mother in Cary Hall, she worked alone in the dorm the night before students returned home, returned from Christmas vacation. She observed a, she observed a beach ball sized light glowing in an open lavatory. The girls in Carrie had been playing with Ouija boards for some months. I warned them that they might bring something unpleasant into the building, she said. When the light began moving toward her, she hastened into her upstairs room, closed the door, and waited to see if the orb would come through. It didn't. I wasn't really afraid, she told me. I just didn't want to tangle with it. Today's ghosts are an integral part of campus legend. Dennis McDonald, student affairs director, mentions them at the annual autumn dorm orientations. Just another dimension of campus life, he smiled. Nothing to get upset about. We tell the students where they can get assistance if they encounter those part parts of St. Rose's history. We approach it all lightly and with good humor. St. Rose of Lima, who lived in Europe and yet was seen touched teaching Peruvian Indians is likely amused by these activities at her namesake college. I actually lived in Lima, the dorm, and I absolutely heard about all those stories. Um, and uh, I think about three doors down on Madison from the interfaith sanctuary, my friend at the time had her room there her room there and um she always called me because she was freaked out with hearing really weird noises and she felt very uneasy there the next one is called the energy and it's actually located in buffalo but the the albany location comes up in it oh comes up in it just a few times so I actually wanted to read it because it was spooky. <laughs> Underneath the facade of a modernized two-family house at 214 Englewood Avenue in Buffalo, New York, is an old church. My husband and I were probably the second tenants after its conversion, Pam said. We came there in 1981 and could see that the downstairs had been a Greek Orthodox church with an apartment for the priest upstairs. The congregation had dwindled and the church was sold. It was strange to find religious vestments and chalices in our attic and cellar. One day, my husband was rummaging in the attic and found a metal tabernacle. Curious, he opened the door of the sacred receptacle and felt an icy wind blow out of the opening. He shuddered and put it down. In the cellar, we found a large life-size wooden cross. Though friends, Through friends, we found the congregation's retired priest, but he was too old and had no use for the sacred objects. So we donated them to another church. Some kind of energy seemed to have re remained in the attic. Whenever I went up there, I found dead blackbirds inside. One had crashed into the attic's window glass, where it stuck fast and died with its wings outstretched. That's how I found him. We reached our attic by an opening. We we reached our attic by opening a door in the kitchen and climbing a set of stairs, but it was hardly ever necessary to open that door, and it kept opening itself, as it kept opening itself. I was pretty sure we had a ghost there, but since it had been a church once, I was never afraid. We met the previous we met the previous tenants. However, they'd had no extraordinary experiences during their eight years there. Once, when my husband and I were arguing in the kitchen, we heard two thumps in the dining room. When we went in, we saw that two framed caricatures of my husband and myself had fallen from the wall. To do that, they would have had to rise over the curved hooks that held them. We figured the energy helped them. It also made us think about disruptions caused by our tendency to argue. 
One day we were packing for a trip and our lavatory faucet suddenly turned on full force. Neither of us was in there at the time. On another occasion, about 3 a.m., I woke up in the dark bedroom and looked across into the bathroom, where I saw a filmy shape solidifying into a human form. It then rose to the ceiling and disappeared. Other times we could find no cause for the banging we heard on the walls and, and in the attic. I think it was all connected to the building have been a church, but I don't understand how it was all related. Pam gave birth to her baby in 1983 and the couple planned to move to Albany. Family and friends came to help them. On the last night in the apartment, most things were packed and on the truck. Dad, my husband, and a friend slept on the floor. Dad often joked about our ghost stories, but that night he heard for himself. The guys had all gone off to sleep when they awoke to hear someone walking in the hall. The sound was loud and echoed in the empty rooms. Dad roused himself and yelled <laughs> and yelled out, Come on, you ghosts, you! They saw nothing, but all felt an icy breeze blow past them. Pam and her family relocated to Albany, but often wonder about the new tenants in their old apartments. What energy remains in a religious structure when its use stops? She asked me. I had to admit, I didn't know. Then we have Hyde Hall. The black coach rolled to a stop and Philip Hooker, architect from Albany, New York, peered out into the cold drizzle of the 1817 springtime. Storm-shrouded Otsego Lake to his left was beautiful, but otherwise the grim, rainy weather made its shores a most unappealing sight for a gentleman's house. George Clark was ready to commission Hooker to oversee the design and building of an estate worthy of the English countryside where Clark's ancestors originated. However, for the moment, the architect could not even envision where to position the grand mansion. Then the storm abated, the clouds scudded eastward, and a ray of light fell on the northwest bluff. In a moment, Hooker visualized the entire building, completed and illuminated as on a summer's day. The mansion he built still stands, now on the property of New York State perhaps the largest domestic structure in the United States prior to the Civil War. Hyde Hall was praised by famed American architect Sanford White as one of the most beautiful in America. The 50-room mansion remained in the hands of Clark's progeny until 1963, by which time the building badly needed repair. New York State coveted Clark's 600 acres and two dairy farms for its new Glimmer Glass State Park, and finally agreed to purchase the deteriorated house and outbuild outbuildings in 1963. Planning the restoration of Hyde Hall, state, state authorities never reckoned that Clark's excuse me, that Clark family members and guests from 185 years of history remained in the house to supervise the entire project, staying on to enliven visitors' experiences. George Clark owned lands in New York State and Vermont and held interest in sugar mills in Jamaica. His wife and family remained in England, declining to relocate to America with him. Clark named Hyde Hall after English forebears. Prior to 1813, he divorced his English wife, Anne Carey Cooper, widow of James Fenimore Cooper's brother, became his second wife and marriage, a marriage lasting until Clark's death in 1835. Their, their son, also named George Clark, left a legacy of enlightened architectural, agricultural planning and animal husbandry experiments that improved his herds of milk cows and cattle. Despite a life plagued with debts and near escape from creditors, the younger Clark added internal and exterior improvements to Hyde Hall. It was the Clark family home throughout the 1800s and into the 1900s, but Clark, fortune, but Clark fortunes declined, and so did the estate's upkeep. At the end, in the early 1960s, the Clarks stayed one step ahead of the building's decay, moving to unoccupied second-floor rooms as rain-soaked ceilings fell in bedrooms behind them. After its sale, Hyde Hall was boarded up and posted against trespassing in 1968. Within a few years, the not-for-profit Friends of Hyde Hall was created to oversee the rehab rehab rehabilitation effort and its funding. 
In the early 1900s, American writer James Fenimore Cooper's son, James, a friend of the Clarks, first described the old structure as haunted. I visited the site in 1968, but was unable to see the mansion's interior until I was guided through in 2001 by Douglas Kent. The veteran historian has extensive knowledge about every Hyde, Clark, and Cooper that ever came near the Hyde Hall. Accompanied by my intuitive friend Paul, I asked Kent to take us room, room, from room to room without any introduction. This allowed us to absorb the atmosphere of each room and enable us to make our psychic to make our psychic observations. After that, Kent agreed to share pertinent pertinent information as we left each room. We crossed from a back door through through two first floor servant workrooms and into the first large room. There, Paul visualized a large Christmas tree in one corner and a fiddler in the front corner. Near a punch bowl, an invisible long past yuletide revelry. Women in expensive empire dresses seemed to stand in conversation while the fiddler's lively music prompted others to dance. Kent verified that Clark's tenants were usually feted at Christmas parties in that room. When we moved into the vestibule or main hallway, where Paul noted the placement of the furniture during Clark's first during Clark's residence, although none of it remains today. Walking through the partially restored dining room and into adjacent rooms of the rear rear wing, we encountered no real ghosts, but an but an abundance of house memories, such as political discussions in the library and linen storage in closets no longer there, all verified by Kent. Our travels eventually brought us to a rear stair stairway where Paul picked up an ominous feeling. Kent noted that the last two Clark family members had told him about their... Alsatian watchdog, which had once stopped dead in its tracks at the top of that stairs, bared its teeth and growled at something down into that stairwell. The dog refused to descend the stairs. They heard footsteps coming up with no person in sight. They had beat a hasty retreat to another less busy stairway to the ground floor. Kent smiled. As we entered the second floor and as we entered the second floor center front room, Paul exclaimed, party room. Kent acknowledged that the room had been used as a billiard room in the early room early in this century. As the last two Clarks prepared to leave the house in 1964, Kent related that they had also heard someone coming up the main staircase just outside the billiard room door. Their dog bristled and graveled again, but nobody appeared at the stair top. Another ghostly resident? Then we moved along to the blue room, and a palpable change was evident in the atmosphere. One could enter, back out the door, and then re-enter and feel the slightly ominous force meeting them. Someone died in here, Paul said. He died coughing, gasping for breath. That, smell, that small bed on the right of the door doesn't go with the room. There was a larger bed that stood to the left of the door when he died. Kent confirmed the old bed's location. We could still see the outline of the servant's bell rope pull on the ceiling molding. And you are right about the death, he said. A friend of the Clark family in the 1800s, Arthur Sherwood, George Hyde Clark's Columbia College classmate, died of a heart seizure in this room. Sherwood had always been sickly, so it isn't certain whether he ever got to practice law, Kent added. In another bedroom, Paul saw an 18-year-old young woman standing beside the bed. She is not a member of the Clark family, but a friend or visitor. She's concerned about some boy in the army. She's worried he won't return. Kent confirmed that a young woman friend of the Clarks lived there in the 1860s and that two young men in the family had indeed died in the Civil War. Down a long hallway, we entered a spot where Paul sensed something unsettling. Kent said that a restoration workman saw what he thought was a cloud of dust there in 2000. The cloud had suddenly gathered into a form that flew up the hallway and into the blue bedroom. We had no sense of this energy's identity, but, but perhaps Sherwood remains in that room and corridor, still settling his personal affairs. Kent Related a story about young James Cooper, a family friend who occasionally slept at Hyde Hall. One night after a party, he was given the blue room. In the pitch dark chamber, 
he awoke with a start. Unable to see anything, he nevertheless knew someone or something was in the room with him. He heard the footfall of someone slowly approaching the bed. He felt the blankets being slowly pulled off. Cooper leapt up and lighting a candle seemed to bring the ghostly activity to an end. He found himself alone and the room's doors were still securely closed. Later, he shared the story with his hostess who said that who said the Clark seldom used the room and reserved it for trusted friends, not strangers. The woman told Cooper of a family nurse and her daughter who had seen an old man in a yellow, red, and green clothing pass down that corridor and enter into the blue room. They had known that George Clark had worn such an outfit and that it was at that moment packed away in an attic trunk. Kent noted that in his 1921 book, Legends of a Northern Country, young James Cooper asserted that Anne Cooper Clark was evicted from Hyde Hall by ungrateful children in the middle 1800s when she was an old woman. According to his information, she paused at the roadside, looked back and shouted, you may drive me out now, but I shall return and haunt it forever. Cooper wrote that some witnesses also thought they heard her say, may no woman ever be happy in it again. So who is it that remains in the builder George's Clark, George Clark's country estate? One of the George Clarks? Or is it the dis dispossessed widow Anne keeping her vengeful promise? Could the presences include one of the dozens of servants who were charged with maintaining the house, one who hasn't relinquished their duties? Arthur Sherwood's energy or consciousness apparently remains. Political and domestic concerns of a young nation still seem to hang in the air on the bluff overlooking Otsego Lake. Lastly, we have Martin's Mischief. Clinton Avenue in Albany has been in transition for over 40 years. Old derelict buildings are sometimes demolished but in places, entrepreneurs have renovated them and brought new life to a moribund neighborhood. Moribund neighborhood. One such visionary in 1985 was an Irishman named Ed. On the lower end of Clinton Avenue, he purchased a four-unit building, hoping to fully rehabilitate it as a rental property. He chose to live on the third floor and opened a sandwich shop on the ground level. As renovations were completed, he readied the first and second floor apartments for new tenants. Getting to that rental stage was difficult and puzzling, however. During the construction phase, the workmen often found their tools missing. Most often, these same tools would reappear in the space between the old ceiling and a suspended ceiling. Who could be the prankster? The mischief continued with the doors, too. At the end of each workday, the carpenters and drywall installers would walk through the work areas, closing all doors, including those of the closets. In the morning, however, they were astonished, for the first few weeks anyway, to find all doors standing open, as if somebody was inspecting the premises. The building had been secured throughout the night, and with Ed's store downstairs and his apartment upstairs, surely he would have heard any intruders. The owner had his own troubles to contend with in the building. One night, about 3 a.m., Ed suddenly awoke to find dark shadows, four of them by his count, standing at the foot of his bed. They, they began to rock the bed very heavy and completely filled... They began to rock the very heavy and completely filled waterbed. He shouted at them and they, they vanished. It was the first last straw for the would-be landlord. He invited famed Albany psychic Ann Fisher, who came to his building and walked throughout the structure with him. She assured him that his vision was not imagination. Several spirits were afoot in the building. Fisher felt a man haunted the building's first floor and that Ed had a ghostly woman tenant on the second floor too. Fisher saw a lady with white hair who spent the better part of her day and night in a rocking chair, peering out the window onto Clinton Avenue, watching for trolley cars, which have not run in the past half century. It's a funny thing, Ed recalls, I was never, never able to rent her apartment very successfully to anyone but single females. I guess she liked their company. Over the years, Ed did some historical research and found that a tenant named Martin Sewell had lived and died there. He took a liking to me. I'd hear him follow me all over the house, from my apartment on the third floor down to the ground floor shop where I had my washer and dryer installed. 
Boy, did I feel creepy doing my laundry there alone at night, he exclaimed. Ed acknowledges his sensitivity to spectral phenomena and so chooses not to operate the old apartment buildings anymore. The only scarier thing in Albany besides the ghosts is the politics, he said. <laughs> So that's all the stories I have for this week. And as always, I just wanted to list the sources. Again, I know I've mentioned it so many times. Ghosts of the Northeast by David J. Pitkin, an author that holds a special place in my heart. I really appreciate all the work he's done locally. And unfortunately, he has passed on. Maybe fortunately, unfortunately. Um, according to him, he might disagree with that. <laughs> and also murderpedia.org. Great resource for for stories like that. So that's it, fellow paranormal aficionados. As always, don't forget to check us out on Haunted518. Also, send us an email with your stories at thehaunted518 at gmail.com. Or maybe there's a topic you want me to research and cover or a geographical area you'd like to hear more about. I'm always happy to um, listen to take suggestions. And then also we are on Instagram at the Haunted 518 and on Facebook at Haunted 518. And that pretty much sums it up for this week. So as always, happy haunting. <laughs> <laughs>